Okay, hello and welcome back, everyone. This is Ben Chiriboga, the Chief Growth Officer here at Nexo, coming to you with another This Legal Life podcast. We are very excited to be sitting down today with James Stapleton. James, how are you? And welcome to the podcast. I'm very fine, Ben. Thanks for inviting me. I always enjoy working with Nexo and look forward to this podcast. Absolutely. Well, it's uh, fantastic to be sitting with you today on this Friday. We're going to talk about conflict resolution. Um, You know, interesting topic for a Friday, but still, you know, I I like to believe that on the other side of conflict is is usually some sort of collaboration and some sort of reconciliation. Um, And so I'm excited to get into what you've learned over the course of uh, your illustrious career, both in the accounting and in the legal world world. Uh, but why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself for those of you who don't know? Yeah. Who is James and what's he doing in uh, 2023 these days? Well, uh, my name's James Stapleton. I've got a bifurcated career. I spent the first half of my career in the accounting profession, uh, most recently with Arthur Anderson and PricewaterhouseCoopers. And then when Enron happened and Anderson started to topple over and PricewaterhouseCoopers and the remaining firms took on a lot of business, I decided it was best to explore alternatives. So I've been in the legal profession ever since. I started out as chief marketing officer at Fenwick and West, and then I held CMBDO roles at Littler, Dickinson Wright, and most recently Blank Rome. I left Blank Rome about a month ago. And I'm looking for my next most uh, interesting part. I am working with a number of uh, of uh, law firms, including one firm in uh, Florida. And it's an in- it's always an interesting piece. I, if I have an expertise, speaking of conflict resolution, I'd say it's probably this. I like to think I optimize the relationships between clients and law firms. Mm. And there's always sort of a, a subtle tension on a variety of levels on a variety of levels. But of course, my expertise is coming from the staff end. And that involves a variety of different approaches. You have conflict re- resolution with the attorneys where they have the entire power base. You have conflict resolution with your peers, which is always an interesting proposition. And then when you manage people, and I've managed people for about 30 years, then you have conflict resolution with people who have an idea or an imperative or a direction, and you have something else in mind. So, so there's all kinds of opportunities for uh, conflict resolution. But that gives you a, a pretty basic idea of what my background is. Now, the key issue, the key part is that the way conflict gets resolved in the accounting business is very different from the way conflict gets uh, resolved in the legal business. Um, I guess I'd I'd say the following. When I was in the accounting business, they were going through a period of extreme consolidation. Mm. 75% of the second tier national firms when I was there went out of business. Half of the what were once called the big eight and are now called the big four accounting firms, half of those went out of business. Mm. So it was extremely competitive, which means the pressure to do well, to generate business, work well with clients was extreme. There were all kinds of opportunities for conflict. Uh, The way it got resolved in the accounting business was that someone on the top made a directive. And let's take the most basic one. Let's say uh, whatever you call it, key account teams, 
client teams, LAMP, larger cap management program, whatever your, your term for trying to cross sell a very large client is. At PricewaterhouseCoopers, the person on top said, we will have client teams. This is what the structure is going to look like. Here's the plan that everyone's going to follow. And if you own a client relationship, it's the firm's relationship. It's not your relationship. And you will let people in. And it happened. And it went like that. And I remember when I joined Fenwick, the second day I was there, I spoke to the board and I was very excited. And they said, sure. tell us about client teams. How do those really work? And I, I jumped right in and I spoke for 45 minutes. And one by one, I could see all the faces start to fall. And at the end, the chair pulled me aside. He said, yeah, that's not going to work in the legal profession. Yeah. Because uh, the, the, at its most basic issue, a lawyer owns a relationship with a client. And the, when you ask or expect a lawyer to open up that relationship, there's no real upside for that lawyer, whether the new attorney works out well or doesn't. If they don't work out well, you threaten the relationship. If they do work out well, then they still threaten the relationship because the attorney might lose control over the relationship. Mm. So you've got to find a way to benefit the firm to generate additional revenue, generate additional relationships, but still have a good relationship with the attorney, generally speaking, who's bound and determined to maintain their part of the relationship. And I've had many attorneys say, literally, I don't even care what happens to anybody else or the firm as long as I keep my... Uh, Keep my relationship going. So that's sort of the the basis of the conflict. Yeah, and of course. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish thought. Yeah. Speaking as a as a CMBDO, you control a certain amount of budget, and those same attorneys are going to come to you. And generally speaking, all an attorney really wants is to be treated a little bit better, nicer, and more differently than all the other attorneys. So <laughs> they'll come to you with requests and the majority of which candidly you have to turn down mm. and but it's it's going to be a conflict so you have to uh, explore ways to get the attorney to not only understand it and have the same perception that you do but have a good relationship with that attorney afterwards so it's not so yeah. much conflict as yeah. it is a, a, a finding a common ground yeah, agreed. So you did a, an excellent job of sort of uh, describing, I would say, some of the uh, the inherent tensions and where the inherent tensions sort of come from uh, within the context of uh, of a law firm. I would add one more and get your um, get your pushback just because it's top of mind, and and that's of course the inherent governance structure of law firms, being that um, they are owned by partners, and the inherent government structure about non lawyers. A term that, of course, we know we don't like, but uh, non-equity partners and non-lawyers not really having a an inherent part of of the leadership business, which of course is much different um, than in accounting firms. If um, if I'm not correct, I've never worked in accounting. I've only ever done one thing. Um, I really need to get out to the other side, but um, but that's but that's inherently the case, right? Would you add that that dimension, that governance uh, and ownership uh, level, um, is sort of uh, an underlining cause of Tension uh, uh, within the law firms as well. Well, you're a hundred percent correct on that, Ben. Um, in fact, let me give you a specific example. The the, mm. the challenge is 
that it's very difficult to get anything done in a law firm because you, no one individual can order a lawyer to do anything. Right. You can recommend, you can ask, you can beg, you can plead, you can cajole, you can barter, you can bargain, but you can't order. And so what ends up happening is this uh, proliferation of, of committees and subgroups within a firm that act as the governance structure. One of the four firms that I was with had 65 committees. And how that firm got anything done, I have no idea. But the inherent challenge is that frequently these committees will act as cr at cross purposes. So right. for example, right. I was with a firm where all of the budgeting was done by practice group. Mm. And yet the industry groups all had business plans. Uh -huh, the uh -huh. geographic areas all had business plans and they all had imperatives. And they all had objectives, but they didn't have any money. Right. They had to go to the practice groups and beg for money to execute their plans. Well, you can imagine how effective that was. You sure. can imagine how much the practice groups would prioritize, let's say, a local request versus a request of, let's say, a rainmaker in their practice group. The rainmaker sure. in their practice group, they get the money. The B-level partner out in a different office who has maybe a tangent affiliation with their practice group, they don't get the money. Mm -hmm. So there's built-in conflict relevant to the uh, governance structures, as you know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay, so let's um, let's move into solution uh, orientation, and we could go on and on about the the inherent problems, and of course the um, and the um, uh, the root causes of that. But um, conflict resolution and dealing with conflict resolution, I think, is one of the of the ways to start to deal deal with that. And you've had a a long career in dealing with conflict resolution. Where's a good entry point into into ideas around conflict resolution, specifically around um, around law firms? I start with a couple of uh, assumptions. Uh, mm -hmm. One assumption is that both sides have to get something out of the uh, conflict. There are rare instances in which there is going to be a final no. But as a general rule, I don't like to say no, and I don't like to start with that as my as my negotiating point. Uh, and conflict resolution is a negotiation, generally speaking. If both sides come in with a a well thought out and a well held position, as opposed to strictly an emotional position, sometimes it's going to be strictly emotional. But uh, but I don't like to say no out of the out of the gate. The third item that I think is key is that inform more information is always better. Mm. And so I strongly suggest uh, asking a lot of questions, doing a lot of proactive listening and getting behind what's at the first level of resistance. The first level of resistance is uh, frequently a smokescreen for what's um, further behind it. And I'm going right. to give you one example. Um, I had an employee uh, two levels below me at one point, and he wasn't very effective. He had been effective for many years. He was a very strong employee. Mm. And all of a sudden, he started uh, performing poorly, uh, making excuses, and his manager was not handling it well. 
And I spoke with the employee and he mentioned all the obstacles that the firm's governance structure was throwing up that was making it difficult for him to do his job. Mm. Well, that governance structure existed for all of us and we were all sure. able to do our jobs. And so I started getting a little deeper and uh, found out that his uh, mother was in severe ill health mm. and that he was essentially her sole caregiver. And once we got to that level and we got HR involved and he could take some time off and help resolve uh, the challenges. And I found a, a backup for him. He ended up leaving the firm about nine or 12 months uh, later. He needed to have a job that wasn't quite so stressful and mm-hmm. demanding. And we actually got to it a little bit later than we should have, which leads me to the fourth point. Mm. Fourth point is, is the earlier you can diagnose the roots of a conflict, the less likely you are going to have to take an emergency resolution. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's the stitch in time approach. So I don't want to say I actively court conflict. I'm certainly sure. not a confrontational individual, but this is why a manager should be taking the temperature mm. of the people they work with, not just their employees, but their bosses and their peers. And they should have a fairly good idea of what's going on around them because being helpful, if you get that reputation for being helpful, that's a really good step for people to understand that once you get into a resolution, you're not in a conflict resolution situation, you're not going to just try and stamp it out, that you're always willing to have that conversation and be a good listener. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's um that's a good entry point. Could we apply could we try to apply that um these four tools and these four tactics um, to to a very specific conflict. So I'm trying to tie in um, what we just talked about, which is which is sort of a four four step part um, uh, to get into conflict resolution with the previous sort of the paradigm of conflict. And maybe we could apply these two together. There there is always an inherent conflict between the lawyers. And the business of law or the business professionals that are quote unquote uh, uh, within the firm. And to put it very bluntly, just to get to the point, heart of the matter, you know, you have lawyers with their particular um, incentives structures, and then you have the business of law professionals within the within the firm who. Over the course of the last 10 years, I don't think it's too hyperbolic to say that they have grown in stature and they have grown in uh, sort of their power um, where they um, uh, where they direct uh, things. Of, of course, we've seen the rise of CMBDOs. We've seen the rise of client service teams. We've seen the rise of sophistication on the business side really rise. And there is an inherent tension in some sense. Uh, you could say it is as the as law firms move from the practice of law to layer on the business of law or evolve in some sense there is an inherent conflict net net it's all going to be good for everybody in the long run but certainly as we're in this sort of time between worlds you can see that these two sort of power structures do you want to speak a little bit to how conflict resolution within that very interesting paradigm shift maybe that's happening right now sure and i'll give you a very uh, specific example um, first of all, I want to point out that you're dealing frequently with low EQ individuals. Mm. Um, if you've ever seen um, emotional profiles 
uh, sure. lawyers, particularly law firm lawyers, as opposed sure. to to in lawyers in yeah. departments, as opposed to in-house. You've got um, individuals who have a um, a fairly inward developed sense mm-hmm. of where they stand and and how things should be, and they they know they have a need, and they know they have, and usually they express their wants or desires as their need, but uh, and they know that you can fulfill it. And mm-hmm. so what they will often attempt to do is try to negoti- negotiate or order or threaten mm-hmm. to get what they want. I had a first-year associate threaten me mm-hmm. that if I didn't buy his sister's software, he was going to make trouble for right. me. Now, that's a fairly easy bit of con- conflict resolution. I just mm-hmm. mentioned it to my good friend, the CEO, and, <laughs> you know, right. and I got a nice apology call uh, from right. the lawyer. But um, frequently, it'll come down to, uh, in my end of the business, on the marketing Mm. and business development side, they have an imperative to grow their business and to become more profitable for a lot of reasons, for their own reasons and and for reasons of their practice group. So they'll come to me and they'll um, ask or demand a certain investment be made. Mm. And so I developed a list of 12 questions. I turned it into uh, an article that got published. Uh, But it's 12 questions I always ask whenever some partner comes and asks me for usually an overwhelming investment, which they think of as next to nothing. And (laughs) so I asked them, I I asked them, what's the, what is the literal cost? Who's the audience? There be buyers. Are there other competitors involved? Is it emotional Mm -hmm. issue? Is it a hot topic? Is it something we can leverage through thought leadership? Is it something mm-hmm. our existing clients mm-hmm. are working on? Will this benefit you or will it benefit other partners? If it benefits you and other partners, who are the other partners? It'll benefit? Mm-hmm. And there's there's more yeah. questions like that. But what I try to get them to do is think about it other than out of their own two eyes mm-hmm. and how the firm has to resolve it. But you have to be a little bit careful mm-hmm. because you don't want to squash what is their strong instinct for growth mm. by saying right. you, you can't just say look that twenty thousand dollar investment is ridiculous there's no way you know you you can't do that you know you well if we can't make the 20 what if we made a five thousand right. dollar investment you'll still get to speak you'll mm. still be a member of the organization and then we talk about some strategies that will that will help them, and usually they they come away su- successful and and happy. And I've never been, and I can honestly say that after 18 years in the legal business, I've never been in that specific conflict where an attorney has gone away without something mm-hmm. and without uh, a direction. I have pulled a few back from the brink that you know if they get through the first two questions. Well, fine, you don't want to do it, and they take that sort of the mm-hmm. approach that a, a toddler takes. And and I always say, look, that's I, hey, let's I want to I want to help you, and I yeah. do think you should get involved in that organization and mm-hmm. even that event. But maybe this is the way we might, we might approach it. So you have to be a consultative uh, professional, and that, by the way, is I think what's behind a lot of the respect that has accrued to in-house uh, staff because they've been able to to take that approach versus yeah. a. Uh, by the way. Something I want to mention, um, there are firms that are cognizant of the imbalance of power. Mm-hmm. And 
restrict communications with business staff to a subset of lawyers. They essentially go, they essentially say, well, the practice group leaders and up are allowed to talk to staff. But if you're a line partner, if you have a request to make, make it through your PGL. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make it through your practice group mm-hmm. leader, your industry leader, but don't make it directly uh, mm-hmm. to the department. And frankly, that's for good reason. I have a couple of firms in mind, both of which are extremely successful and both of which, frankly, have very happy staff. Because yeah. if you try to re- reconcile too many uh, competing demands, uh, I mean, that's that's the thing with conflict resolution. The the old cliche is that people walk a bit way and, and nobody's really happy, but nobody's really unhappy. <laughs> right, right, there, exactly. <laughs> to the extent that you can inject a degree of realism, yeah. that's that's almost always helpful. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I want to... <laughs> First, a comment. You know, I'm I'm a very lucky individual. I get the chance to speak with lots of CMBDOs. I get the chance to so many smart people within the business love thinking of it. It's so funny <laughs> the the example you brought up about the lawyer asking for something. I can't. I can probably count on two hands the amount of times that. The amount is always $20,000. I don't know what it is, but it's like, this has come up so many times. And it's like, I was almost about to crack up laughing. Just like, it's something, I think they just love that number. (laughs) But um, it always comes up and then they always walk it back to 5,000, you know, and they, um, they cut it in a quarter. So I just wanted to mention that. Let's take the conversation maybe in just one next direction, which is, which is emotional intelligence. I think it's, um, I've, um, I've had the chance to speak to Dr. Larry Richard, which you might know as um, uh, the psychologist who runs Lawyer Brain, and he's done a lot of um, really great work on the inherent nature of lawyers and their inherent psychology, especially those who work within law firms. Now, you know what he says is there's um, and uh, uh, there's a there are two there are two outlier traits, which is resilience, and within lawyers that that tend to make it difficult to collaborate with them. And that's the first is uh, resilience. And resilience, low resilience tends to show itself in high perfectionism um, or the need to to draw a lot of higher perfectionism. And the second is high individuality as a function of the bell curve relative to other business professionals, let's say. So, you know, high individuality and low resilience or the, the you know, a lot of a lot of perfectionism sort of makes makes uh, lawyers difficult to deal with. Nevertheless, though, he has a silver lining to this, which is lots, uh, and I just want to see where this lies in in conflict resolution, which is um, it's still the case that lawyers can, one, increase their emotional intelligence and be trained to increase their emotional intelligence. And I'm just wondering if you can sort of speak to the idea of emotional intelligence a little bit more and whether or not you've picked up any tricks of the trade for sort of rewarding high emotional intelligence, high collaboration, the idea of putting yourself in one in another person's shoes, as it were. Um, I don't know. It's an incentive thing. It's a training thing. It's um, it's a public recognition thing. All of that sort of rolled in. You get you get the trump of the question, I think. I do. Um, I'm going to give you my favorite example there. Uh, in, the, in the accounting business early on, uh, Arthur Anderson was competing with Ernst & Young for Nokia's business. It was a huge mm-hmm. contract. It was $25 million. And this is probably 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the presentations made by both firm were exactly equal. It was very difficult for Nokia to come to a conclusion. And so they chose Ernst & Young and Arthur Anderson did what law firms absolutely don't do. They did two things. Number yeah. one, they did a post-mortem. Post-mortem, yeah, of course. And they, yeah. they went to the client and said, we thought we were fantastic, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the client said, we measured you and Ernst & Young very carefully, uh, side by side. And you know what it came down to? It came down to they had a client service program. Yeah. And right. you didn't. Uh-huh. And Anderson but said, but wait, wait, we do. It's called Exceed. It stands for Exceed Client Expectations Every Day. And yeah. we just thought it was kind of silly and we didn't present it to you. And they said, yeah, yeah, maybe you should have. Mm-hmm. And so that was the foundation of every client feedback program I've ever used. Now, I took that to, I'm not going to mention which of my law firms, mm-hmm. but I put it in front of the, this person was the marketing partner, the partner to be, who was designated to run marketing at that right. firm. And I outlined a program for generating independent client feedback outside of the client partner relationship. <laughs> and this is what that partner said to me. I am not paraphrasing. This is what he said. He said, Jim, we are like legal gods to our clients and mm. therefore it would be beneath us. Right. To ask them their opinion and, in fact, would yes. reduce their client satisfaction because it would remove our godhood in their eyes. Do mm. you understand? Mm. Well, I understood something, but sure, uh, right. exactly <laughs> what he was uh, conveying. Right. So that partner lost two considerable clients over the next six months. Yeah. And he came back to me and he said, you know, I think we're ready for a client feedback program. Right, right. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> I will say I will say this. Um, at PwC, I had the uh, international marketing role for anything that was technology hardware based, computers, mm-hmm. peripherals, networking equipment, et cetera. And they put me in charge of U.S sales support, sales, field marketing, all of that. I had a team of about uh, 40 people. Mm. And my boss said to me, my boss was the vice chair of PwC. And he said, in the last two years, we've lost 120 publicly traded attest clients in Mm. our our corner of the world. And at the same time, Deloitte's only lost 45. Uh And KPMG, Ernst & Young, and Anderson have, have lost between 60 and 65. And so I want you to find out why from every client. And I also want you to call the partners and I want you to do a gap analysis. Mm -hmm. So I called 120, all 120 clients. And I actually got through to 108 of them. In fact, it says something that I got through to a higher percentage of clients than I did through to the partners. But (laughs) we came up with a series of scorecard that was a series of recommendations for the uh, partners to embrace that turns that let's just say informed our client service uh, program. And I've been very uh, aggressive in performing postmortems ever since. Now, that's one of the great things about conflict resolution. If I'm a person without power and I say to an attorney, well, you need to do this. It's going to fall on deaf ears in part because of the EQ issue, the emotional issue you were talking about. But if I say your client told me this, right, 
then it has a a much more significant impact. And I will tell you something, Ben, if I had to do one thing for the rest of my career and only one thing, it would be to perform postmortems. You learn so much about your firm when you lose a client or you lose a lead, the perspective of clients, after all, who pays everybody's salaries, it's it's an invaluable uh, tool. And it does help in conflict uh, resolution. You know, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the inherent conflict over why a client or a prospective client decides not to work with you, mm-hmm. there's a pretty major conflict right there. Sure, sure. So that more than anything, I think has helped contribute to the emotional growth of the attorneys that I've worked with. Yeah. So, uh, so two things there, shout out to Dave Southern and Dave did a, over at, uh, Mayor Brown, we did a three part series, uh, with him on client teams and specifically postmortems and the power of postmortems. Uh, Dave spent some time like yourself outside of the law firms. He was in the consumer, consumer packaged goods. And he really learned about the voice of the client and really truthfully the power of the voice of the client, right. Um, and brought that in, um, and really laid out a great step. So that's one thing that there it is in our podcast. So go ahead and listen to that if you're more interested about that. The second is I want to I want to pick up on the thread here, which is the idea of um, we're going to get into our last pillar, but let me introduce it. And the, and the, and that pillar is going to be working toward win-win solutions and some strategies toward working toward win-win solutions. To reference the podcast that I did with Dr. Larry Richard, one of the most persuasive um, persuasive things that you can do um, with lawyers is, one, reference the client, as you've just mentioned, bring the client voice into things. And the second is other people like you are doing this the idea of uh, fomo as like uh, as as it's as it's uh, typically called today incredibly powerful because it plays into the natural inclinations of um, of lawyers today um, and then just to complete this you know one thing that you never want to do with lawyers argue because it's like uh, it's kind of like feeding the feeding the flame as it were basically it's like they're it's inviting them uh, into their arena so don't try to argue try to persuade and a really great persuasion is the client voice as well as uh, the idea of other people like you are doing things like this and I, I'm based on your smile I, I know that that resonates with you but let's get into the idea of uh, of win-win solutions and I'm of the camp that you are which is if everybody walks away a little bit happy maybe maybe we've uh, we've all done uh, the job for resolving conflict you want to talk a little bit about getting into win-win solutions and what does that feel like within the con- within the context of of a, con- of a conflict resolved, let's say. Let me, uh, uh, so first of all, getting to win-win is, is the great benefit of any uh, conflict resolution. And frequently it's because at least one of the sides doesn't understand that if they don't get everything they want, there's still an upside for them. And let me give you a very uh, specific example. I had a uh, director at one of my firms that was uh, prone to doing other people's jobs. And um, in part, she wanted to be in charge of everybody and and everything. And so that she had this natural inclination. You know, she wasn't in charge of events, but she'd start running an event. And she wasn't in charge of technology, but she'd start committing to use a certain kind of technology. And and she did not have uh, superior people skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
In fact, I'd say it was in the other direction. Uh, so one of the things I do to address a multi-party conflict resolution is the first thing I'll do is game plan it with every individual party. And I'll explain to each of them, here's what I understand. You tell me if I'm not understanding this correctly. And usually it's not difficult to understand. But I explain how our group session is, is going to go. And we talk about options. We talk about what's likely to occur, what's unlikely to occur, what our responses will be. Especially if one party has been uh, a little bit egregious in terms of how they're interfacing with their peers. And I do this with all of the individuals. So I had this one situation where two of the directors were extremely upset with the third director. And I got all three of them to agree. Here's how the, uh, the resolution's going to go. And so uh, we got on the phone. And I didn't want this to be a face-to-face, -face, in part because I wanted there to be an out if it went sideways. And this mm. did go sideways mm. because one of the uh, persons was, one of the people involved was uh, more aggrieved than she'd let on. And so as it started to go sideways, I cut off the call and I said, we're going to regroup. Uh, today's Tuesday. We're going to regroup on Friday. There's a few more things we need to discuss. I apologize. We're going to get together. And we did. And I pulled that person aside. I said, I, you and I talked about this. You didn't mm. follow the path that I wanted and that mm. you agreed and that we all agreed. And and she essentially said, oh, I, I lost my temper. And I, mm. I said, okay, you can't do that mm. here. If I need to have a separate conversation, we will. But um, on the Friday, she pulled it uh, together, and we discussed with each of them what mm -hmm. the win side for each of them would be. And what mm -hmm. I explained, what I, I didn't explain, what I was successfully able to get the offender to understand was that if she stopped trying to do other people's jobs, she'd have mm -hmm. more time to do her own job, especially things she liked to do, because she would mm -hmm. complain that what she really liked to do is generate business and she liked to <laughs> attend events and meet people and 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 create opportunities for new matters. And she was actually mm -hmm. very good at it. And so we had a regroup on the Friday. The other two were successfully able to retain their jobs, which uh, without interference, which they saw as their upside. And the person who was stepping on toes realized that she'd have much more time to attend mm -hmm. to uh, her own duties. So that was a uh, that was an example of, of yeah. seeking and generating a win-win solution for everybody. Yeah, we're coming to the end. I could keep on talking with you, quite frankly. I mean, as, as somebody who has stepped into a leadership role for really the first time in my life, you know, a lot of this is um, is 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 really soaking in and resonating in in a deep way. Um, and so I just want to thank you for 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 the wisdom and impacting it. It's been fantastic to really talk to you, talk to you. I want to close with just one last question, which is you've you've had you've you've held major positions at major law firms major leadership positions you know where 
How would you attribute the idea of conflict resolution as a function or, or as a driver to your success? And let's say just versus strategic uh, initiatives, tactical understanding, um, you know, uh, uh, management of numbers and metrics, um, you know, where does all of this fall? Where, where would you say in the long run? And, and I guess it's a function of people and, but yeah, you, you get the question. Yeah. Where, where does this, where does that, where do you attribute this over the, over the course of your career conflict resolution and being, um, and be, and being nimble and, and adequate at that? Well, I'll say that it's it's absolutely mission critical, mm. uh, particularly if you want to progress in your career. Um, and it's it's mission critical from a number of different perspectives. First and foremost, you're dealing with attorneys, partners, all of whom have uh, imperatives that involve improving their own position. And if you have more than one, then you know they're going to have conflicts with each other, at least in terms of, of getting enough resources, enough attention, enough time, enough money. And then you have team members who, if they're any good, and most most people hire really strong team members, the strongest they can find, mm-hmm. they'll be good at their jobs, they'll want mm-hmm. to advance. They'll want to uh, make as much money as they can. And on another level, will want to um, uh, expand their own abilities and indulge their interests. Uh, and you uh-huh, do that uh-huh. to the extent that you allow them to do that to the extent that they can. But, you know, you also have to ensure that the needs of the firm are met. So those are, are, are competing demands. Essentially, uh-huh. you have competing demands at every single level. That right. goes with your peers, by the way. We didn't talk about yes, conflict right. resolution with peers, but um, I've had, if you go to, I went to a peer once where I needed, um, I needed to generate a certain amount of information whenever we signed a new client. I needed four things. Why did you leave your former firm? What kind of criteria we're looking for a new firm? Who are the other firms you considered? And why did you specifically go with us? And I went to my peer who ran the client intake uh, uh, process. And I said, could you work with clients and the partners to generate that information? Because you're right at the strike point. You're right when they engage us. All that information is available for you. And he said to me, I'm willing to give you their industry, but that's it. <laughs> I said, well, that's, I mean, that's not useful literally at all. I, I can look up on, on any number of databases <laughs> to see what their industry is. And, and he wasn't willing to, to mm. budge an inch. Uh, at the same time, so I ended up going to the clients or to the partners to generate that, that information. Now, you offend your peers at your peril because if you if you make enemies of your peers, you're you're not going to need any more enemies. Believe me, that that's going to make life really difficult for you. Uh, so I have always tried to accommodate my peers whenever they've had a request or or a need. So um, that's something I think I think yeah. needs to be uh, out there. And the final point that I think I want to make my my father ran a company and he put this really inelegantly, but uh, 
but I think it, it kind of fits in conflict resolution. He said to me, it's not the people you fire that make your life miserable. It's the people you don't fire. Um. And the, and most of the time, most of the time you can resolve conflict. So everybody wins at least something. So everybody is at least uh, partially satisfied. And usually most people are reasonable. Usually most people understand that that has to go that way. Sometimes it doesn't happen that way. And that at the back of your mind, that, that nuclear option, so to speak, it, I, I don't like to use it. I've never, I've always thought of it as a, a last resort. Um, but at some point, sometimes it has to happen, has to happen that way. Uh, but I don't like to go there first or quickly. I like to find the best possible resolution. That's the whole, that's what's inherent behind uh, positive conflict resolution. Yeah. James, uh, we're going to wrap up. I, um, Friday afternoon, 12, 12 p.m. here on the East Coast. I'm going to give you back your time. I have had a wonderful time talking to you. I just want to appreciate um, all the time, all the last words. It's um, it's really been a fountain of knowledge, both uh, I know for the audience um, as well as me personally. So thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate it. Great talking with you. And we'll talk again soon. Take care. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. And uh, if you like this podcast, like, subscribe, all of that kind of stuff. And we will be back very, very soon. Thank you so much to everybody. And thank you to James Stapleton. See you, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.